Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. The idea of a kind of intact tomb at a certain moment where the archaeologist breaks through the door and lifts up a lamp to reveal the glint of gold everywhere, that's become the defining moment for archaeology. In this episode, I speak with Chris Naughton about his new book, Egyptologist Notebooks. Beyond what they tell us about ancient Egypt, these notebooks also reveal to us the personalities of the early Egyptologists. So begins Chris Naughton's recent book on the discovery and documentation of ancient Egypt. The story begins with a 17th century German priest and continues to an 18th century Danish naval captain, the great 19th century French diplomat and first director of the Louvre, Vivant Denon, the general and soon-to-be emperor Napoleon, the finding and deciphering of the Rosetta Stone, the woman who founded the Egypt Exploration Fund, until ultimately Howard Carter, the archaeologist who discovered King Tut's tomb. Beautifully and copiously illustrated, Naunton's book, Egyptologist Notebooks, The Golden Age of Nile Exploration and Words, Pictures, Plans and Letters, was published in the U.S. by Getty Publications as part of Ancient Worlds Now, the Getty's initiative to promote a greater understanding of the world's cultural heritage. Well, thank you, Chris, for joining me on this podcast. It's a pleasure, Jim. Thank you very much for having me. Now, your book explores, as you put it, not only what archaeologists' notebooks tell us about ancient Egypt, but what they tell us about the personalities of the early Egyptologists. How did you come up with the idea to write this book? Well, for a long time, I've had an interest in the history of the subject. I'm an Egyptologist myself, first and foremost. So, you know, I've spent a long time studying ancient Egypts and trying to get under the skin of the ancient Egyptians, what they were thinking and how they were doing things. When you're studying this subject, thinking back to my undergraduate days, perhaps, to a certain extent, you're taking things at face value. So, you know, you might be told that, uh, for example, Pharaoh Ramesses II comes to the throne in such and such a year and he reigned for a certain amount of time and he did this, that and the other. And as you begin to study subjects like that in more depth, you begin to realize that you need to understand how we come to these conclusions. And that led me to, to thinking about the history of our subject. And in my early career, I, I worked for an organization called the Egypt Exploration Society. And while I was there in particular, I was very conscious of the, the physical notes uh, the drawings, the sketches, maps, plans, diaries that had been produced by archaeologists in, in Egypt as a means to an end, you know, a way of capturing information and setting it down so that it could be organized and then in most cases shared with the scholarly world and, and a, the wider public through publication. But I was also very struck that in many cases these things are beautiful objects in their own right. So it's on the one hand, it's a desire on my part to tell a story about how we know what we know. But this book was also an opportunity to use these notes and drawings, sketches, as a way of showing these off and celebrating them as beautiful objects in their own right. I, I think most of us know something about the early uh, discoveries in Egypt. And we think of them as dating back to the early part of the 19th century and continuing into the early part of the 20th century. But your book begins with a 17th century classically trained German priest and antiquarian, Athanasius Kirchner, uh, who, from his position at the Roman College in Rome, was commissioned to study Egyptian hieroglyphics. 
What was known of those markings then? How did they come to Rome? And how prepared was he to deal with them? Kierke is one of the very earliest to begin looking at hieroglyphic inscriptions. And of course, in his time in the 17th century, knowledge, at least in the West, of, of how the language and the script should be read had been completely lost. And he was a kind of polymath. He was somebody who was interested in everything and wanted to understand how the world worked. And he also was a very religious man and was familiar with Neoplatonist ideas about how the world and the universe, the cosmos worked, some of which derive from some very ancient texts, which themselves were set down in, in Egypt in the first place. And he believed that he could read into the hieroglyphs this kind of ancient wisdom, which, which he and others like him believed kind of were fundamental to understanding the universe. Um, so he was looking at um, inscriptions with a kind of predetermined idea of what they were going to say uh, to him. And, and he was completely mistaken in this. He wanted to see individual signs as encoding uh, things like the sun and the moon and the cosmos and the, the four elements of the earth. The hieroglyphic script and, and language, the Egyptian language don't work like that at all, we now know. But in the process, he became one of the first people to begin doing things like copying inscriptions and gathering together Egyptian material. He never went to Egypt himself, but he's, he's one of the first to look seriously at it, however misguided he was. And he relied quite heavily on things like obelisks because there were a number of them in Rome, which meant that they were accessible to him and to his colleagues. They were ancient Egyptian obelisks, but they'd, they'd come to Rome at the peak of the Roman Empire, brought there to embellish Roman public spaces, public buildings. So um, his contribution, I think, is undervalued because we Egyptologists now tend to think of him, first and foremost, for being very wrong about how to read the language and, and the script. But actually, in gathering this stuff together, in my view, he makes an important contribution He's also, I have to say, an interesting counterpoint to what comes later because his drawings, for example, are, by our standards now, not terribly accurate. And that, in, in some ways, sets us up for what is to come. And that's an increasing importance of accurate copying, accurate recording of Egyptian sites and monuments and inscriptions. And from one character in the book to the next, things begin to get more and more accurate, more scientific. Now, given that there was some remnants of the ancient Egyptian past available to people in Rome. How is it that there wasn't preoccupation with attempts to interpret uh, the hieroglyphs earlier than the 17th century? Why, why not in the ancient Roman times? Why not in the Renaissance times? Uh, that's a very good question. I mean, there had been attempts. Most interestingly, although we're only really beginning to come to appreciate this now, there had been a number of attempts made by scholars in the Muslim world, actually, Arab scholars, who had, I guess, readier and easier access to hieroglyphic inscriptions in situ in Egypt. Kierke actually uh, leans on one of those scholars for some of his source material. But in fact, that particular Arab scholar was also mistaken in, in, in the way of understanding these things. As to why there hadn't really been many more attempts up until this point. I suppose partly uh, scholars were defeated just because it took years and years and years and years of study, not only of the Egyptian language, but of related languages and scripts as well, and comparison of one to the next to begin to 
to understand the language. And I suppose, too, there was not the easy access to uh, Egypt, or at least not taken up by travelers as there was later. But your second uh, Egyptologist, shall we call him, uh, George Sandys, was the turn of the 17th century poet who was trained in Latin and traveled to Egypt uh, from Alexandria to the Giza Plateau and the Great Sphinx and Pyramids. And then he reported on his findings. How and why did he travel through Egypt? What was he looking for? Um, Sandys is a really fascinating character. I mean, he again is somebody who just has a fascination with nudging the boundaries of what is known, I think, and, and you know, exploring territory that was for him and uh, for the culture that he came from at the very edge of knowledge and understanding. So Egypt in his day was a very far distant land. He visited as part of a wider tour of Europe and the Eastern Mediterranean. You know, the people who inhabit Egypt at this time have a different set of religious beliefs, different language, different script, different dress. You know, everything is different. So it wasn't an easy thing for him to do to go there, but he just wanted um, to try to see what of the ancient culture of Egypt, which was known of and, and had survived in the writings of classical authors and in the Bible, of course, as well. He, he wanted to see what could still be seen of this famous ancient culture on the ground, as it were. He visited um, Alexandria, where he arrived. Um, he travelled across the delta to Cairo and explored the area around Cairo, particularly looking for the ancient capital city of Memphis. He didn't get much further than that, which by comparison with later travellers makes it seem as though he didn't really get very far. But he was travelling at a time when almost nothing was known of at least in, in Europe, of the situation on the ground, as it were, in Egypt. So his descriptions and the drawings that he included in the published account of his travels are among the first views and illustrations we get. For somebody like me, this is hugely exciting because he really was visiting Egypt at a time when everything was brand new. When he talks about visiting places like Giza or a site which he doesn't give this name, but I'm sure I think must be the cemetery site of Saqqara, which was attached to the capital city of Memphis. He's really visiting at a time when almost no excavation of any kind had been done. We now know this Saqqara to be an incredibly rich place, incredibly rich site archaeologically. And he was going there when it was almost completely undisturbed. His descriptions give us a feeling for what it must have been like to have been there and to be coming across these things almost as one of the very first visitors in centuries. Yeah. Now you follow your account of Sandys with an account of uh, a Danish naval captain and explorer named Frederick Ludwig Norden. Uh, what were among his most important contributions to the knowledge of ancient Egypt? And I note that this is the early part of the 18th century and that's coincident with the sort of first developments of systematic archaeology in Rome and in Herculaneum and, and um, Pompeii. So there's a sense that uh, this is simultaneous in, in date with what's being discovered in Egypt. Yes, there is a growing appreciation and understanding in Europe, I think, of the value of visiting ancient sites and monuments. By Norden's time, a still relatively very small number of people, but nonetheless, a number of people had travelled to Egypt. And Norden... His contribution really is, I think, is in raising the standard of the kind of account of Egypt. He's very thorough. He's commissioned by the Danish king to make a survey of the country and its sites and monuments. And he is um, a captain in the Danish 
Navy, very young man at this point in his 20s, but extremely capable um, and clearly very competent in working with and creating maps, for example. And maps are absolutely crucial to organizing information about archaeological landscapes and sites. So his account is really notable for its detail. He describes the places he encounters on his journey up the Nile one by one, mentioning not only ancient sites, but the villages he passes as well. There's a huge amount of information in his account about the situation in Egypt at the time. His maps, by comparison with what had gone before, are incredibly good, incredibly accurate. Um, And his drawings of the sites that he saw, although he didn't draw absolutely everything, what he did draw is noticeably higher in quality than the things that had gone before too. So we're creeping towards this being the kind of science of of archaeology and Egyptology at this point, certainly something more than just a travel account. Now, the fourth amateur, in the best sense of the term, that you write about was the 18th century English clergyman, Richard Pocock, who visited and described the Temple of Karnak at Luxor and the tombs of the kings of Thebes. Tell us about him. Incredibly, um, Pocock travelled to Egypt at almost exactly the same time as Norden. And in fact, although they weren't entirely aware of it, they actually crossed on the Nile um, at a certain point. Pocock, in keeping with various other travellers around this time, was simply on a tour around the Mediterranean region and looking to record what, what he saw. He visited the, the major sites, he, he set down an account which he would later publish, and he made a number of drawings. My particular interest in Pocock is in his sketches of the landscape on the western side of the river in the area of what is now Luxor. So this is the part of the world that includes very famous sites, particularly the Valley of the Kings. And he he sketched monuments in that area, including the so-called Colossi of Memnon, which are actually colossal statues of um, the 18th dynasty king Amenhotep III, and showed them in one case in position in relation to the Theban cemeteries. And his drawings are a good example of somebody attempting to use imagery to convey the lie of the land. So, you know, essentially here are the statues. And if you're looking for the tombs, you'll find them off in the background there. But in terms of sort of uh, scientific accuracy, there's still something lacking. And his sketch of the Valley of the Kings is a really sort of glorious, slightly contorted vision of a mountainous wadi with a a mountain itself at the top of the sketch with a series of doorways leading off in all directions from this uh, desert wadi floor. And these are meant to be the entrances to the tombs of the Valley of the Kings. And in the way that Pocock sketches it, you could expect to spend no more than about two or three minutes walking from one end of the valley to the other and you could encounter a doorway and entrance to a tomb once every few feet. Um, it's, it's not really like that in reality at all. We know that. But still, Pocock is trying to convey this sense of a valley full of tombs like this, which is, even if visually it's not quite right, there's some truth to what he's trying to convey. Yeah, it does look a bit like a, a housing development right now, the way he draws it. But nevertheless, there is something about these... Uh, undecorated entryways that take you down into the earth that then open up a reveal of great burial enterprise. I think you're right. And and actually, thinking about these drawings has caused me to reflect on 
what we mean when we think of as accurate. You know, as somebody who has spent a long time now as an Egyptologist, there's a lot that you take for granted about a certain way of doing things. So what really strikes you uh, when you look at a, a drawing like this of Pocock's is how inaccurate it is um, in that we are all trained to capture things almost kind of photorealistically. And if there's any deviation from that, that in some sense is wrong. And yet Pocock was making these sketches at a time before any of these scientific standards developed. So what might seem inaccurate and therefore kind of wrong or bad somehow to us now actually was extremely effective in his time. Well, now we get to the great figure of Napoleon. He launched his great campaign in 1798, and it resulted in a 26-volume description of Egypt published between 1809 and 1829. Uh, what was the purpose and legacy of the project? And tell us about the major figures, including Napoleon, the architect and antiquarian Dominique Vivon Denon, Lord Nelson, the Ottomans, and the Mamluk warriors. I mean, this is the stuff of, of magic. Yes, it is. Napoleon, from a purely Egyptological point of view, um, his great contribution is in instigating this grand description of Egypt. But of course, first and foremost, his reason for being in Egypt was very different. He was there for political, territorial reasons. It was all part of the French um, struggle against the British and an attempt to capture territory in a particular part of the world, which would make life difficult for the, the British, who were benefiting very greatly from their own territorial influence in particularly India. The French believed that if they could succeed in capturing Egypt, they'd be able to exploit it for its own natural resources, but they'd also get in the way of the British trade routes between the UK and, and India. So they took a very large army headed by Napoleon to Egypt and seized the country by force. There are all kinds of dubious things about, about that that um, we, we should be very careful about celebrating. But he was, or somebody was, enlightened enough on Napoleon's behalf to bring with the campaign dozens of scholars, artists, scientists of all kinds to make a record of the country, of the natural environment, the natural landscape, um, and the built environment, and that meant documenting the monuments of modern Egypt, but also ancient pagan Egypt. The French army was decisively successful almost as soon as it arrived, but it wasn't completely able to defeat the Mamluk army, which was its principal um, opposition in the country, for, for a few months. The Mamluks, incidentally, were a kind of class of soldier who'd come to rule Egypt on behalf of the Ottoman Empire. And so Napoleon's savants, as he called them, as they came to be known, made what ultimately came to be, at that time, the most comprehensive and the best survey of ancient sites and monuments in Egypt. So they were doing on a much, much grander scale what people like Norden, Pocock and other travellers had done before. And most of the histories of Egyptology begin with Napoleon's expedition and the description de l'Egypte. The publication was definitive, it was comprehensive, it was a giant leap forward. The drawings were made to extremely exacting standards. They were very, very thorough in dealing with ancient sites and monuments in every last corner of the Nile Valley and the Delta. And then the publication itself was extremely well received and quite widely circulated as well. So it had a huge impact on scholars of Egypt back home. And it had two main effects in the years immediately following. 
One was to enhance the knowledge of scholars of what there was in Egypt, also of encouraging further study. But the expedition also established a permanent presence in Egypt of not only French individuals acting in various capacities out there, also British. Um, the French were in fairly short order defeated by a coalition of British and Ottoman forces. So in terms of the military purpose of the expedition, it was a failure. But it did, as I say, lead to an established permanent presence of Europeans in Egypt. And that provided a platform for more and more and more travellers, scholars, eventually Egyptologists and archaeologists to go to the country and to, to do so without the barriers that there had been before in terms of you know security or language or adapting to the customs. Everything was much easier from this point onwards. So the Napoleonic expedition really is a watershed moment for the subject. And no doubt they provided sufficient resources to continue the research. And that was in part because of Denon's, how adept he was at inflating the ego of Napoleon and of his great patron in this. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think we like to think of Egyptology and archaeology as being um, a sort of pure pursuit and that all of us who are interested in the ancient world and, and, and active in studying it are doing it purely for the intellectual adventure of learning about the past. And yet something that was really obvious to me by the time I'd finished the research for this book was just how embedded Egyptology and archaeology in Egypt has been in the political machinations of various European countries, particularly my own country, Britain, and also France from the beginning of the, the 19th century onwards. And the two things continue to operate hand in hand. Now, the next two uh, explorers that you document, Frederick Caillot and William John Banks, both end up going to Abu Simbel. And until this point in your story, we concentrate primarily on in around Alexandria and Cairo, and then in Luxor with the Valley of the Kings and Queens. So tell us about Cayo and about Banks and about the allure of Abu Simbel. Well, Abu Simbel is one of the most extraordinary sites in Egypt. Um, it's the site of two rock-cut temples of the time of Ramesses II, Ramesses the Great, the third king of the 19th dynasty, uh, whose reign began in the 1300s BC and, and ended in the, in the 1200s. These are colossal uh, temples cut directly into the living rock in the region of the second cataract, which is at the limit of a kind of frontier region between what was the territory of Egypt in ancient times and the lands to the south. The cataracts of the Nile are these natural rocky barriers in the river. Huge rocks create uh, sort of rapids uh, in the river which are impassable when the Nile is low enough. They provided natural frontier points between Egypt and the territories to the south. So Abu Simbel was built, cut into the rock, at a time when Egypt controlled this first to second cataract region. Um, it was powerful and able to expand into the territory to the south and it's a great statement to the people to the south of Egypt's might and power, the, the might of Ramesses II himself. The Great Temple is fronted by four enormous statues which have the features of Ramesses II himself. These had come to be almost completely buried in, in sand. And up until the first few years of the 19th century, um, knowledge of this place had been completely lost 
in the West, completely lost to, to Europeans. It was a Swiss explorer, um, Johannes Ludwig Burkhardt, who was the first to visit the site in around about 1813, because it was almost as far as the second cataract and a long way beyond the first, which marks the, the traditional southern frontier of Egypt. It was quite a long way further than most people had explored up until this point. To get there required um, usually a new boat, possibly a new crew, new sets of permits, new sets of negotiators to smooth passage through this next stretch of the river. But from the point that Burkhardt identified Abu Simbel, it became a great destination. Banks, William John Banks, was a wealthy British aristocrat. He'd done all the kinds of things that independently wealthy landed nobility should do. He was an MP, um, he was very well educated, and he eventually um, set out on a grand tour, taking in places including Egypt. And while there, he not only made his own explorations, but funded the work of a number of others. Banks was also interested in exploring the area further even south of Abu Simbel itself. The classical sources made it clear that further south into what is now um, Sudan, there was a, a kingdom of people the classical authors refer to as Ethiopians, and that there were some spectacular monuments in that direction. And so Banks and others came to be interested in exploring this region, and in particular in locating the ancient capital of the Ethiopians, which was said to be at a city called Meroe, the location of which had been completely lost up until this point. And so in the early 1820s, 1820, 1821, Banks who by this time had returned to the UK, commissioned another explorer, artist, a man called Louis-Maurice Adolphe Linon de Belfort, a Frenchman, to try to identify the location of Meroway. Banks had quite a close working relationship with the leading British individual operating on behalf of the British government in Egypt at the time, a man called Henry Salt. So, through this connection to the British government, the expedition led by Lénon de Belfond was really, although Lénon de Belfond himself was French, really a kind of British attempt to, to become the first to identify Meroe. And at the same time, the French Commission d'Égypte, um, which was the legacy of the Napoleonic campaign, sponsored another individual, an Egyptologist artist called Frédéric Caillot, to do the same thing, to travel south, to try to identify Meroe. So both Lénon de Belfond and Caillot, in fact, took the opportunity to accompany an Egyptian government military expedition to the south, essentially gathering slaves for infrastructure building projects in Egypt. But making use of the Egyptian army's protection, they began travelling uh, south and made a number of extremely important discoveries. It fell to Cayo to identify Meroe, although his uh, identification of the site wasn't entirely accepted for a number of years. But he visited Meroe, observed the distinctive tall Sudanese-style pyramids, which were built for the, the kings of Meroe, 
and uh, convinced himself and many others, and he proved to be right, that he'd, he'd found this ancient capital city. Léon de Belfort was not far behind him and made a number of uh, other interesting discoveries in the area. Uh, but this is the moment in sort of 1820, 21, when this British-French competition to make this great discovery um, resulted in, in the sudden discovery of these great monuments of a kingdom we now know as Kush. Well, now, this whole history of discovery is, of course, uh, so important to the story that you're telling, and it features primarily or settles upon these gigantic forms, whether they're the pyramids or the tombs or sculptures or things. But the most extraordinary discovery is, I think, and one can make the claim, is of a modest stone piece that was found in a rebuilt part of a Mamluk fort, and that is the Rosetta Stone. Tell us about that discovery and what it unleashed with regard to our understanding of the ancient world of Egypt. Well, I think you, you're you absolutely right. The Rosetta Stone was a, a lump of rock which was cast aside at a certain point and used in the foundation of this rebuilt uh, Mamluk fort. And the French army under Napoleon Bonaparte was also instructed to gather antiquities for the National French Collection. And it was a French soldier who noticed this inscribed object um, tossed into the foundations of a, of a monument and wondered if it would be important. And it turned out that he was absolutely right. The key to its importance lies in the fact that it was inscribed with the same text um, three times over, once in ancient Greek, once in a script called Demotic, um, which is a kind of a cursive sort of handwritten form of Egyptian, and then in hieroglyphic, which is the much more formal, um, monumental script used to write the Egyptian language. And it's a fairly, relatively speaking, inconsequential decree of the time of Ptolemy V, in whose time both Greek and Egyptian were in use in the country, hence the uh, the different languages used in the inscription. And of, of course, the fact that it was the same text in these different languages, ancient Greek being one that scholars could read, hieroglyphic and demotic being scripts writing the Egyptian language that scholars couldn't read, it allowed them, by comparison of the three different scripts, to begin to accelerate efforts to decipher the Egyptian language. And the Rosetta Stone, along with the um, close study of numerous other texts that were being gathered from this time onwards, ultimately, a little over two decades later, led to Jean-Francois Champollion, the uh, French scholar, announcing that he had established a system for deciphering Egyptian as written in the hieroglyphic language. Now, another part of the story is how it ends up in the hands of the British and is now such a featured part of the collection of the British Museum, Tell us about how it was that it went from the French to the British. Well, the British were initially unaware of the French expedition to Egypt, but it didn't take very long for the news to reach them. The British sent a fleet of ships to pursue the French, and a few weeks after the French arrived, there was a battle at sea, and the British uh, were victorious very decisively. And ultimately, through a combination of military defeats, um, but also a bit of diplomacy, it was agreed that the British would escort the French army home to France. So the French 
uh, in all but a few exceptions, left the country. And as a part of this agreement, um, all of the antiquities that the French soldiers and savants had, had acquired during their time in the country would also pass to the British. So rather than making their way to the National uh, Collection of France and the, the Louvre uh, in Paris, they would instead make their way to the British Museum. And of course, one of the prize pieces in the collection was this incredibly important stone from Rosetta. There's an irony perhaps in, in the fact that although the uh, race to decipher the Egyptian language um, was led by a British and a French scholar, um, it was ultimately a Frenchman who would succeed in using the Rosetta Stone, which was lost to the French. Well, and with that op opens up this great story of the discovery of antiquities in in Egypt. And there's some great characters associated with the story. And one of them is Giovanni Belzoni, uh, who's an Italian explorer and larger-than-life character who, who discovered the tomb of Ramses I and the tomb of Seti I, one of the greatest of all the pharaohs. And many of us who've been to Egypt and been to Luxor and across the river from Luxor have come across his graffiti, his name carved into the stone. Tell us about Belzoni. Belzoni is a kind of... Um accidental archaeologist and, and Egyptologist in as much as um, he had a very varied career. He was Italian by birth, but he had come to London. He was an enormous um, man, very tall, very muscular, very strong man, and for a while had acted as a circus strongman at Sadler's Wells in London. He had sort of failed to establish himself and, and you make an enormous success of himself in that role, and he'd had an idea for a system of irrigation, which he thought might be of interest to the Egyptians at this point. This is around about 1815. And by this time, the French had left Egypt. The country had been returned to Ottoman rule, but under a man called Muhammad Ali, who had assisted in, in ousting the French and come to be the ruler of Egypt himself. And he was governing notionally on behalf of the Ottomans, but, but really independent in all but name. And he was busy by 1815 in modernising Egypt, in, in providing it with a new modern infrastructure, um, technologically advanced army, factories to manufacture weapons and ammunition, and in building things like roads and in particular canals. And so... Belzoni, like a number of other Europeans at, at this time, was beginning to think about Egypt as a place where he might make his fortune by making a contribution to this great modernization effort there to try to sell his idea to Muhammad Ali. He failed. Um, but Belzoni at the same time came into acquaintance with Henry Salt, the British consul at the time. And Salt himself was collecting antiquities essentially as part of his own private collection, but with it in mind that these would eventually make their way to London um, for the edification of the British people. And Belzoni was, even though his idea wasn't successful with Muhammad Ali, was somebody who clearly had a kind of engineering and logistics um, capabilities. And so Salt decided to ask him if he could move a colossal statue from... Uh, a temple in the Luxor area on the West Bank. And um, up until this point, efforts had been made to move it, and it was simply too big. It was thought that it couldn't be done. And yet Belzoni managed it pretty easily, it seems. And this is also 
along with the Rosetta Stone, now on display in the Sculpture Gallery in the British Museum. So Belzoni began acting as an agent in moving large things for Salt and other Brits, but also, in the process, developed his own interest in excavating. So at around this time, people like Salt and his French counterpart, Drovetti, were beginning to think not only of carrying off monuments which were very visible, but also beginning to dig, to look for more. And Belzoni is very much a part of this. He also um, became hooked on the idea that there was more to find in the Valley of the Kings. The classical writers had described some 40-odd tombs, so that's many more than were visible in the early 19th century. And Belzoni thought, well, they must be here somewhere. And he determined that he would make a great discovery. Um, in, in fact, he found between half a dozen to a dozen tombs, many of them undecorated, so not the spectacular discovery he was looking for. But he found the tombs of three pharaohs, which by the standards of anybody before or since is a really spectacular achievement. Well, not only was he the great discoverer of things, but again, great characters you describe him, but his discoveries cast a bright light on the possibilities of further discoveries in Egypt as funded by private patrons. And one of those who was a, uh, someone who made this possible was a, a woman uh, traveler and author of the hugely successful travel book, A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Amelia Edwards is her name. And she uh, created, in response to the, all these Egyptian antiquities that she saw that were damaged and lying about, something called the Egypt Exploration Fund in London, in which members of the public could contribute to the funding of conservation of Egyptian monuments. Tell us about her and her story. Well, Amelia Edwards uh, was a writer, an artist. She had made quite a name for herself in the middle of the 19th century in the UK for those things. She'd written a number of successful novels. So she wasn't exactly wealthy by the standards of her day, but she was comfortably off, well off enough to be able to travel. And she began to travel in Europe and wrote accounts of her travels and became a successful writer of travelogues. Uh, and on a uh, one particular trip to Italy, she found that the weather was awful and almost on a whim, as she describes it, decided to take a, a detour away from cold and rainy Italy to the warmer climes of Egypt, which was a very fashionable destination at this point. And this is the early 1870s. And she took what by this time was a fairly standard journey, um, arriving in Alexandria by boat, enduring a day or two of quarantine, um, not spending too long in Alexandria, which most visitors seem to find quite a disappointment by comparison with what must have been there in the time of uh, Cleopatra and others, making her way to Cairo, hiring a boat and taking a journey up the Nile as far as Aswan. And in doing so, she absolutely fell in love with Egypt and with its monuments, but also became very concerned at the rapid destruction of the things that, that she was seeing at the hands of the natural elements, of archaeologists, of tourists like her, and to some extent of the local population as well. In other words, all these wonderful monuments that she was seeing, she feared would be lost if something wasn't done. And so when she returned to the UK, she wrote an account of her travels, A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, which quickly became, and still is, I think, even today, the definitive account of a journey up the Nile. But she was also determined to do something to try and arrest this, the degradation and decay that she saw amongst the monuments that she visited. And so she determined to set up a fund 
to send an archaeologist or an explorer, to use the term that was in, in use at the time, to Egypt to uncover sites which were threatened so that they could at least be documented and any portable antiquities rescued before they were lost for good. And so this became the Egypt Exploration Fund. And the idea was a little bit like crowdfunding of modern times. Um, interested members of the public would contribute as much as they could. If they could contribute as much as one pound, then they would be entitled to become a member of the fund and receive the annual publication at the end of each year. Um, and in this way, she established a way of financially supporting um, regular, highly scientific excavations, which were then uh, routinely, regularly, promptly published to very high standards. And this sets the template for institutions excavating in Egypt from this point onwards. Well, now we could go on for a long time because there are some great figures in this era of the late 19th and early 20th century who were privately funded by figures such as Amelia Edwards through her fund, the Egypt Exploration Fund. But we have to, can't stop without talking about Howard Carter, who was connected to that fund and uh, who excavated at the Temple of Hatshepsut, but also, of course, most famously, Tutankhamun. So tell us about Howard Carter and what Howard Carter's contributions were to the history of archaeology. Well, Howard Carter, of course, is most famous for the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun, which is really the definitive archaeological discovery, the idea of a kind of intact tomb at a certain moment where the archaeologist breaks through the door and lifts up a lamp to reveal the glint of gold everywhere. That's become the defining moment for archaeology. It could never be repeated, I think. Um, it will never be superseded. It's almost, you have to sort of rub your eyes and scratch your head a bit to believe that it really happened, but it did. And Carter was the archaeologist who made that happen. But the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun was the culmination of his career. He had, by that time, already been working in Egypt as an archaeologist, Egyptologist, for around about 30 years. But also, in fact, as an artist, of course, the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun was incredibly important. But he had made a number of incredibly important discoveries up until this point, um, including the tombs of uh, other pharaohs of the New Kingdom, um, some of them quite possibly even you know, more important pharaohs than Tutankhamun. It's just the sheer good luck that Tutankhamun's tomb happened to be found intact that means Carter is so, so celebrated and so famous. He had a very good nose. He was extremely knowledgeable. He was also a first-class organiser and documenter of archaeological remains. And that the second part of that at least comes from the fact that his first work in Egypt was as an artist, he travelled to Egypt as a teenager, around about 16 or 17 years old. He had a great love for Egypt at this point, but he'd been trained as an artist, and he was brought to Egypt by Percy Newbery of the Egypt Exploration Fund to sit in front of the walls of beautifully decorated tombs and make accurate copies of the decorations so that they could then be republished in scientific reports for the benefit of the scholarly and wider public. And... Although almost by accident he would come to be a digger, an excavator, and a very good one at that, he never, of course, lost his ability to draw and to paint. So much as we think about the tomb of Tutankhamun as being dominated by gold and other precious materials, and it's documented very, very beautifully in photographs, but from the archaeological point of view, what was really important was the organisation of the material, 
the conservation efforts ensuring that the material could be removed, all of which Carter supervised brilliantly, and also the documentation of the material as it left the tomb on its way to the Egyptian Museum. And that meant lots of documentation, note-taking, but also drawings. And there was nobody better, there perhaps never was anybody better, at making drawings of ancient things in Egypt than Howard Carter. So he exemplifies what I suppose this book is all about, in that his story, the story of his career, is the story of a series of really important contributions to Egyptology and what we now know about ancient Egypt. But the drawings that he made, the paintings, the sketches, which he made as a kind of means to an end, as a way of capturing information so that it could be circulated, those things are beautiful objects in their own right. So the book is really about, yes, telling his story and the story of others, but it's also about showcasing these works of art which were produced in the name of archaeology and I, I can't think of anybody who produced more beautiful art as part of that process than Howard Carter. Well it's a great story Chris and uh, you tell it extremely well from the earliest part of the 17th century to the middle part of the 20th century. The book is so beautifully illustrated with uh, the works of people like Howard Carter so we thank you for all of that and we thank you for letting us publish the book and we thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This episode was produced by Zoe Goldman with audio production by Gideon Brower and mixing by Mike Dodge Weisskopf. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Arts and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. For photos, transcripts, and more resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Or if you have a question or an idea for an upcoming episode, write to us at podcasts at getty.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>